Countries from all over the globe, they send delegates to the United Nations, which meets along the East River there in Manhattan, New York. Imagine Isaiah as one of those delegates, the honorable ambassador from the nation of Judah. Isaiah strides to the lectern to deliver his speech. And he reiterates the message that he's written here in chapters 13 through 24. He pronounces God's burden. In other words, his heavy judgments on the nations there in attendance. That includes Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, the land beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, Egypt, Edom, Arabia, Tyre, even his own capital city of Jerusalem. All the major nations in the world of his day. His grand finale is a blistering judgment against the whole world. And when he's done, Isaiah has made some bitter enemies for sure. They probably would have tied the prophet of God to a concrete block and thrown him in that East River. Isaiah was a brave and bold man of God. Well, in chapter 20, he continues his judgment against Egypt and Ethiopia. In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and took it. Now, a lot of Isaiah's prophecies have flipped back and forth from the immediate to the future, from 700 B.C. to the end of the age. But here, Isaiah sort of helps us out to get our bearings. He pinpoints where he's at on the timeline. The northern kingdom of Israel, the northern Hebrew kingdom, was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. That occurred with the fall of Samaria. Eleven years later, in 711 B.C., an Assyrian general, Tartan, mentioned here, he conquered the coastal city of Ashdod. It was a Philistine city. And with the fall of that Philistine city, it sent word to Judah that they were next in line on this Assyrian invasion that the Assyrians would be knocking on their doorstep soon. Well, verse 2 tells us, At the same time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body, and take your sandals off your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Now here's another aspect of Isaiah's ministry that would not have gone over well at the United Nations. Imagine Isaiah in front of the esteemed ambassadors from around the world delivering his speech in the buff. It was Isaiah's nude review. He spoke the bare facts. He told them the naked truth. Verse 3 tells us, Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years, for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. That's a shameful thing, to have your buttocks uncovered, to be naked, to be barefoot, to be led away, stripped naked, and led away captive. Some Bible teachers suggest that Isaiah didn't actually strip completely naked. He just stripped down to his inner garment, his underwear, so to speak. Sort of like a man being processed into the prison population. You know, they strip them down to their skivvies and then they issue them the new prison garb. Well, the prophet Isaiah had dressed himself in the minimal uniform of a prisoner of war. And this was the message that he wanted to send to the people to whom he was sent to speak. He knew that his nakedness and his bare feet represented a prisoner of war, a POW. And this illustrated his prophecy, for Assyria was about to invade Egypt and Ethiopia. Isaiah's bare buttocks and his bare feet are just one example of a type of ministry given to many of the Hebrew prophets. You know the old saying, a picture is worth a thousand words. And so God used living parables, spiritual skits, to illustrate his burdens and his words to certain people in certain nations. Isaiah was just one example of this. You remember 
Ezekiel was commanded to lay on his side for 390 days as a message to the people. Hosea was called on by God to marry a prostitute. Oh, my. Boy, that would be uh, quite a calling. Jeremiah buried a sash by the river Euphrates so that it would rot and, and have a message for the people. In the New Testament, you remember, Agabus tied up Paul with his own belt as a message. These acts illustrated God's message to his people. And here, Isaiah is told to walk naked and barefoot for three years. Whether that was 24 hours a day, 365 days a year for three years, or whether it was a portion of each day for three years, we're not sure. One thing's for sure, this was a taxing ministry, no matter how it played out. It's interesting, as a pastor, I've discovered there that that there is an aspect to delivering any message that requires revealing yourself. Isaiah, when he prophesied and when he spoke God's word to the people, he did so naked. And I think every good preacher also has to reveal himself if he's going to preach God's word and speak to God's people. Thankfully, for your sake and for my sake, not literally, but we've got to be honest, we've got to be vulnerable. We've got to be able to reveal our own heart as we deliver God's Word. You know, people watch us. People know. And if we're not nakedly honest with our struggles, they sniff out our phoniness. It might be rough, but all good Bible teaching requires some preaching in the buff. Verse 5. Then they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation in Egypt, their glory. And the inhabitants of this territory will say in that day, Surely such is our expectation. Wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? Now Isaiah's prophecy of judgment on Egypt and Ethiopia was not just a message to those two nations. It also spoke to God's people Judah. For the Jews, understand, had forged an alliance with their neighbors in Africa to supposedly protect them from the invading Assyrians. Isaiah is saying to Jerusalem, Hey, Egypt will be no help to you. You need to trust in God, not in man. And this is a lesson we need to learn, of course. Don't be foolish. Don't put your trust in the doctor, or in the union, or in the government, or in the coach. Not ultimately. Ultimately, you need to trust in God, just as the people of Judah did. Well, chapter 21 begins. The burden against the wilderness of the sea as whirlwinds in the south pass through. So it comes from the desert, from a terrible land. Now here's an odd expression. The wilderness of the sea. What is the desert of the sea? Or the dry, literally the dryness of the sea. Understand, throughout the Bible, the sea is an idiom for humanity. We even use that today. The vast sea of humanity. We'll learn from the context here that Isaiah is speaking of Babylon, another nation that's to rise and be a player on the world stage. Geographically, coming from the north, Babylon was the gateway to the Persian Gulf. But spiritually speaking, Babylon was a dry place. It was a mirage. Babylon was the home to the world's wisdom and wealth and religion. But underneath the glitz and glamour, there was a dryness, there was an emptiness. Well, Isaiah speaks of Babylon here in chapter 21. A distressing vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the plunderer plunders. Go up, O Elam, besiege, O Media, all its sighing I have made to cease." Now understand, during Isaiah's day, Assyria was the world power, not Babylon. It would be another hundred years before the rise of the Babylonian Empire. At the time of Isaiah, Babylon was just a hotbed of unrest there on the Euphrates River. And yet here, Isaiah not only speaks of Babylon, but he speaks of the two groups, the two people groups, that are going to conquer and overthrow this future Babylonian Empire. He speaks of the Medes and the Persians, or the Elamites. We read from Isaiah, we, when, when we read Isaiah from the perspective of history, we marvel 
at the precision of his prophecies. Here's something he said that came true a hundred years before it happened. We marvel at it. I'm sure Isaiah's first readers might have wondered if he was nuts. But he actually predicts not just the Babylonians, but the two nations that will overcome them. And Isaiah speaks of this future Babylon. Therefore my loins are filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. My heart wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I longed, he turned into fear for me. Prepare the table, set a watchman in the tower, eat and drink. Arise, you princes, anoint the shield. He speaks of a particular night that ended up ominous for Babylon. Daniel chapter 5 describes the Medo-Persian conquest of Babylon from the perspective of Belshazzar's banquet hall. Remember, Belshazzar was the king of Babylon at the time that the Medes and Persians invaded. And the king that night was whining and dining his guests. Do you remember the story? The enemy, on the other hand, they went upstream and they dammed up the Euphrates. Remember the strategy of the Persian general, Ugaburu. The Euphrates flowed under the walls of Babylon. They couldn't be scaled. So the invaders went upstream and they dried up the riverbed so that their troops didn't have to go over the wall, but that they could march under the walls. The Medes and the Persians that night conquered Babylon without firing a shot. Earlier that night, while Belshazzar was drinking the wine and while they were having their party and their wild orgy, God's hand suddenly appeared on the wall and wrote some ominous words. After they were translated by Daniel, the king was told their meaning. Babylon's number was up. They had been tried in the balance, and they had been found lacking. And that very night, Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians. Notice verse 6. For thus has the Lord said to me, Go set a watchman, let him declare what he sees. And he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys, and a chariot of camels. And he listened earnestly with great care. Then he cried, A lion, my Lord! I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime. I have sat at my post every night, and look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. Then he answered and said, notice the words, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And all the carved images of her gods, he has broken to the ground. You see, this is a reaction of a faraway city when news arrives of Babylon's great fall. And here again, we find in Isaiah the blending of both the immediate circumstances and future prophecies. For Revelation chapter 18 also speaks of events that will occur near the end of the age. For John sees another Babylon, either a future rebuilt Babylon or a kingdom with the same name and the same idolatrous spirit as ancient Babylon. But that Babylon is also toppled. In fact, we're told that God rains down fire on the city. And in Revelation chapter 18 verse 2, you should write it down and refer to it later. In Revelation 18 verse 2, John uses the same language as Isaiah. He says, Babylon the great is fallen is fallen. I find that interesting. Lifts it right out of Isaiah. And notice what the messenger to this city cries out as, as the reason for the fall. He says, a lion, my Lord. A lion. You know, the fall of this future Babylon will also be at the claws of a lion. Remember Revelation chapter 5 when Jesus is introduced? He's introduced as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus Christ has prevailed. Jesus will be the one who will destroy this future Babylon and establish his kingdom on the earth. Well, Babylon's judgment ends in verse 10. Oh, my threshing and the grain of my floor, that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. This too reads like Revelation. In Revelation 14, an angel appears in the clouds 
and a sharp sickle appears in his hand, and he thrusts in his sickle, and the earth is brought to judgment. One day Jesus will return to separate the wheat from the chaff, just as he had promised. And then verse 11 initiates a new focus. The burden against Duma, which was another name for Edom. Drop the E and it's Dom or Duma. The word means silent. And it's a play on words here. The idea is that soon God's judgment will come to Edom. The sounds of work and play and laughter in the streets will be silent over the land of Edom. Edomites lived south of the Dead Sea. Their stronghold was the rock fortress of Petra. They were kin to the Moabites. We talked about Moab in chapters 14 and 15. And here Isaiah predicts that the Assyrians will invade not only Moab, but they'll also press further south into the land of Edom. Verse 11, He calls to me out of Seir, Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, The morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, return, come back. Now, the first two verses of Isaiah chapter 14 predicted a nighttime invasion on the cities of Moab. And apparently this is how the Assyrian troops will also defeat Edom. Notice verse 13 begins, the burden against Arabia. And he's just going across the, the course of the Middle East there, and he's bringing judgments on each of these nations. This is the burden against Arabia. You think of Arabia today. These prophecies would include present-day Arabia, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Oman, and the United Arab Emirates. Which reminds me, what do you call a first offender in Saudi Arabia? Answer, lefty. Yeah, lefty. Lefty. Imagine the reaction, though, of a Jewish Isaiah walking naked on the streets of Rehod, Saudi Arabia, and proclaiming God's judgment on Arabia. He wouldn't just be called lefty, that's for sure. We're told, in the forest in Arabia you will lodge, O you traveling com companies of Dedanites. And when you think of the Arabian Peninsula, you think of barren hills and sand-blown deserts, or perhaps an, an oasis or two, some kind of little date palm grove. But here Isaiah speaks of the forests of Arabia. That's interesting. Today the only forest in Saudi Arabia is in the southwest. There's a forest in the Asir Mountains. But in Bible times, the peninsula was much wetter. It was much cooler. It was more conducive for forest areas in other regions, other parts of Arabia. He says, O inhabitants of the land of Tema, bring water to him who is thirsty. With their bread they met him who fled. For they fled with their swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the distress of war. Here Dedan and Tema were nomadic tribes that roamed across the Arabian Peninsula. And evidently these Arabian bands narrowly escaped the destruction of the invader. And thus the Lord has said to me, Within a year, according to the year of a hired man, all the glory of Kedar will fail. And the remainder of the number of archers, the mighty men of the people of Kedar, will be diminished. For the Lord God of Israel has spoken. Kedar was another Bedouin tribe that roamed the sands of northern Arabia. And Kedar, Kedar was the second son of Ishmael, by the way. Abraham was his grandpa. But the Assyrians here will invade Arabia and Kedar's mighty men will, fall, will fail, according to Isaiah. Well, chapter 22 is the burden against the valley of vision. Now understand the terminology here. Usually people ascend to the mountains to get vision. Or they go up on the top of the tower, or they ascend to the walls to receive vision from God. Here this idea of the valley of vision is an oxymoron. It's intended to indicate the low spiritual state of the people in question. And the people of Jerusalem had become a valley of vision. God's people, Judah, the Jews in Jerusalem had sunk so low that they couldn't even see over their shoelaces. Isaiah asks, What ails you now that you have all gone up to the housetops? You who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. 
They were used to dancing in the streets, but now they have retreated to their housetops. Your slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. In other words, the people of Jerusalem had given up without a fight. They fought like defeated men. He says, all your rulers have fled together. They are captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from afar. Therefore I said, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. For it is a day of trouble and treading down and perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountain. Elam bore the quivers with chariots of men and horsemen and Kerr uncovered the shield. Isaiah sees the Elamites among the armies that invades Jerusalem. To me it's unclear whether this is the Assyrian invasion in 701 B.C. that Jerusalem survives, or whether this is the Babylonian invasion that happens 150 years later in 586 B.C. that toppled the walls and that sent the people into captivity. The one certainty that we glean here from this text is that there will be a day of trouble and treading down for Jerusalem. And then verse 7 tells us, It shall come to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. He removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great. And you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem, and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. Rather than trust God, they took the debris and they used it to strengthen up the walls. He says, you also made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. To prepare for the Assyrian siege on Jerusalem in 701 B.C., King Hezekiah, he built a tunnel from the Gihon Spring, the, chief, the city's chief water supply, which was outside the southeast wall of the city. And he carved this tunnel through the bedrock to the Pool of Siloam, which was inside Jerusalem's walls further south of the city. He made a reservoir between the two walls of the water of the old pool. This tunnel, which is today known as Hezekiah's Tunnel, was quite a feat of engineering. The tunnel runs 1,750 feet long. It's about seven foot high, sometimes taller. The tunnel was cut through solid rock. In fact, you can go to Jerusalem with us on one of our trips, and we'll walk this tunnel. The tunnel gave the city an internal water supply that would help it withstand a siege from an enemy army. And yet Isaiah here rebukes the Jews in verse 11. He says, but you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. In other words, the construction of this tunnel actually displeased the Lord. The, the Jews were better at fortifications than they were at putting their faith in God. And we need to be careful not to put our trust in our own ingenuity, but to put our trust in God. Never forget Man looks for better methods, but God looks for better men. And then verse 12 tells us, For in that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth, but instead joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Jews had resorted to fatalistic and narcissistic tendencies. Rather than repent, rather than shave their heads in remorse and adorn themselves with sackcloth and humility, they said, ah, what'll be will be. Life is short. Play hard. Live it up. Sort of the motto of people today. And then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts. Surely for this iniquity there will be no atonement for you, even to your death says the Lord God of hosts. Fatalism is destructive, for there is something you can do about your future. Never feel like there's not. 
Never feel like things are so hopeless for you that you can't turn things around. For there is something that all of us can do about our future. We can repent. We can turn from our wicked ways and we can turn to God. The problem here is that Judah refused and thus God refused to forgive him. Verse 15 is God's judgment on a Jerusalem official that obviously had made God mad. And it's interesting to me here that even in the midst of God's burdens on the nation, He deals with a person. I mean, sometimes God takes things personally. So even in the midst of looking out over the nations of the world, there's one guy that sort of ticks God off, and he's going to deal with him right now. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go proceed to this steward to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, What have you here, and whom have you here, that you have hewn a sepulcher here, as he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock, Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. Now, this man Shebna was a high official in the court of King Hezekiah, perhaps the Secretary of State. But what upset God was his pride. For he had gone out and he had built a mausoleum or a monument to himself. He'd gotten the big head. He'd figured that he would die an important person and he would need to be honored. And so in essence, he went out and he wrote his obituary ahead of time. And he did so to brag about himself. He made this monument to his own honor. Well, verse 15, he will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office and from your position he will pull you down. Boy, the monument Shebna built over his tomb will do him no good because he'll never die there. He'll never be buried there. He'll be driven from Jerusalem and he'll die in exile. We're told, then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Shebna's job, his position, is going to be given over to this Eliakim. The man who promoted himself gets demoted. And God already picks out his successor, this man named Eliakim. And then he says to Eliakim, And the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one will shut, and he shall shut, and no one shall open. This was the king's key. The key to the house, the key of the house of David was a symbol of royal authority. Sort of like kissing the king's ring, you know. The official who possessed the keys had absolute authority. And so the keys are going to be taken from Shebna, and they're going to be given to this one man, Eliakim. That's interesting that when Jesus writes to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, that he quotes from Isaiah chapter 22, this passage that we've just read. And Jesus applies this passage to himself. In fact, Isaiah was actually speaking of Jesus when he said, He who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. John in Revelation takes that exact phrase and he applies it to Jesus. Apparently, Eliakim's royal keys and authority were eventually taken up by Jesus. And thus today, Jesus has ultimate authority. And here's an exciting truth about serving Jesus. If this hasn't been revealed to you yet, Jesus can open closed doors. Do you know that? He can. He opens doors of opportunity and doors of blessing and doors of new venture. Jesus can also close doors so that no one can open. That means he can seal and he can secure his people and protect them. Jesus can open doors and he can close doors. In Revelation 3, the church in Philadelphia was said to have little strength. But they used what they had. 
They had faith enough to walk through the doors that God had opened. May we also have faith enough to walk through the open doors. And then verse 23. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place. And he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. Now this peg is a tent peg. A stake that holds the tent down so that it doesn't blow away in a stiff wind. And this passage is also prophetic of Jesus. Jesus is the tent peg. It's interesting the survival, the longevity of the Jews is ultimately based on the faithfulness of their Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is their tent peg. He is the peg on which the future of the nation hangs. Jesus has seen, or the, over the years, the Jews have seen their share of storms. But the promises of Jesus are what hold the nation steady and secure. And I've got to ask you, what is your hope in tonight? Is Jesus your tent peg? I like that. Are you hanging all of your hopes and all of your dreams, all of your aspirations? Are you hanging your future on his will and words? Is Jesus the one you've, you're tied to, that you're hanging on to? Is Jesus your tent peg? I hope he is. Well, chapter 22 closes. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity all vessels of small quantity, from the cups to all the pitchers. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the, pent, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fail, and the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. And here is a prophetic picture of the cross of Jesus Christ and His atonement. Jesus is the tent peg. But not only do our hopes hang on Jesus, so do our sins. So do our, our unrighteousness. We also hang that on Jesus as well, don't we? For three days, Jesus was removed from his place. He was hung on a Roman cross and the burden of our sin hung on him. He was our peg. Jesus was cut off so that we could be reattached to God and to God's family. Once again, is your life fastened to the tent peg? Is your sin tonight, has it been hung on the tent peg? Well, chapter 23 is the burden against Tyre. Not Firestone or Goodyear, not that kind of Tyre, but the city of Tyre. It was a Phoenician town. 15 miles north of Israel's current border with Lebanon. It was a port city. Tyre and Sidon were the glory of the Phoenicians. These two ancient cities were the maritime powers of the world of the day. They were expert navigators. They were skilled shipbuilders. They sailed the seas for commerce. And yet Isaiah cries out, Well, you ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste, so that there is no house, no harbor. From the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. Ships of, Tar ships of Tarshish sailed from the eastern Mediterranean. But when they came near to Tyre, we're told that they saw her destruction. Now recall Jonah boarded a boat for Tarshish. It was the farthest destination that you could travel east from Joppa, or I mean west from Joppa. Ezekiel 27 verse 12 mentions that Tarshish traded in tin, and that's caused some folks to speculate that Tarshish and Britannia, or England, are one and the same. History teaches us that the Phoenicians actually traded in the British Islands. Wherever they were from, the ships from Tarshish are going to be sailing toward Tyre, and they're going to see the judgment of Tyre as far away as Cyprus, which was 140 miles east of Phoenicia. Boy, to see a city's destruction that far out to sea assumes some serious carnage, some smoke rising, some kind of cloud or some sort. Remember when Jesus judged his hometown of Capernaum? He said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 21, he said, If the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. 
But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. The Phoenician cities were never made privy to Jesus' miracles, as were the cities of Galilee. And with privilege comes responsibility. As colossal as the destruction of Tyre and Sidon will be, what happens to Israel when they reject Jesus will be worse. Now notice verse 2. Be still, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon, whom those who cross the sea have filled. And on great waters the grain of Shehor, the harvest of the river, is her revenue. And she is a marketplace for the nations. This Shehor was the Nile River in Egypt. It's another name for the Nile. He says, Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken, the strength of the sea, saying, I do not labor nor bring forth children, neither do I rear young men nor bring up virgins. Notice the sea has no family. It has no allegiances. Thus it has no protection. Sidon and Tyre are on their own. In essence. And then verse 5. When the report reaches Egypt, they also will be in agony at the report of Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish. Wail, you inhabitants of the coastland. Is this your joyous city whose antiquity is from ancient days, whose feet carried her far off to dwell? Tyre was an ancient city. It was founded around 2000 B.C. It reached its zenith a thousand years later, around the time of King David in Judah. The Phoenicians established crown colonies all around the world, as far away as Carthage in North Africa. And this is why Isaiah here says, Who has taken this counsel against Tyre, the crowning city, whose merchants are princes, whose traders are the honorable of the earth. The Phoenician influence had drifted everywhere in the world. The Lord of hosts has purposed it. To bring to dishonor the pride of all glory. To bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. Overflow through your land like the river, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no more strength. He stretched out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms. The Lord has given a commandment against Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, you will rejoice no more, O you oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. There also you will have no rest. The residents of Tyre can board boats and they can sail to Cyprus. But God is telling them His judgment will follow them. In other words, you can't run from God. And then He says, Behold the land of the Chaldeans. This was the Babylonians. This people which was not. Assyria founded it for wild beasts of the desert. They set up its towers. They raised up its palaces and brought it to ruin. Ancient Tyre actually had two cities, an inland city and an island city. The inland city was conquered twice, by the Assyrians in the 8th century B.C. and then by the Chaldeans or the Babylonians in the 7th century. The island city survived. It was defeated, though, in the 4th century by Alexander the Great. And it's interesting, when we get over to Ezekiel chapter 26, we'll see Alexander's conquest predicted hundreds of years before he even walked the earth. Now notice verse 14. Well, you ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste. Now it shall come to pass in that day that Tyre will be forgotten 70 years, according to the days of one king. When Babylon defeated Judah, they took the Jews to Babel into captivity for 70 years. Perhaps Tyre's abandonment here correlates somehow to Judah's judgment. And then Isaiah continues, At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the harlot. Take a harp, go about the city, you forgotten harlot. Make sweet melody, sing many songs, that you may be remembered. The merchants of Tyre prostituted themselves. They built commercial ties by worshiping the false gods all around the world. They sung the song of the harlot. And it shall be at the end of 70 years that the Lord will visit Tyre. She will return to her hire and commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her gain and her pay will be set apart for the Lord. It will not be treasured nor laid up. 
For her gain will be for those who dwell before the Lord to eat sufficiently and for fine clothing. In the end, Tyre will be conquered and her wealth will be distributed among God's people. There's more about Tyre in Ezekiel chapters 26 and 27. Now, Isaiah chapter 24 through 27 is known as the little apocalypse. For now, these judgments are going to grow more global in scope. Isaiah no longer predicts specific prophecies on these nations around Jerusalem. But now he begins to make predictions that involve the whole world. And these next few chapters parallel the judgments that we find at the end of the age, which are described in the book of Revelation. Verse 1 sort of sets the tone. Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants. You see, I believe that Isaiah 24 has in view a period that the New Testament calls Great Tribulation. It's a week of seven years just prior to Jesus' return to earth. And in it, God judges this wicked world. You see, just as water has a boiling point, 212 degrees Fahrenheit, so does God's anger. God's fury reaches a boiling point where it suddenly leaves the pan and it spills over the sides of the bowl. And Revelation chapter 6 through 19 describes this future period. You remember from our studies in Revelation, 21 plagues are unleashed on the rebel planet. First, there are seven seals. Seven seals get broken. Each of the seals releases a plague. Then seven trumpets blow. And with each blast comes a judgment. Finally, seven bowls are emptied out on the earth. And God pours out His wrath, His everlasting destruction. Isaiah notes, during this time, the Lord makes the earth empty. The word literally means depopulates the earth. That's what we see in Revelation. The fourth seal kills a quarter of the world's population. The sixth trumpet annihilates a third. The net result is the death of half the earth's population. At today's count, that would be three billion people. Can you imagine? Isaiah also says that God distorts its surface. God wrenches the earth's crust. The sixth seal describes a great earthquake and cosmic cataclysms all over the globe. Verse 2 continues the judgment. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. In other words, God's judgments are equal opportunity. They'll impact everyone equally. And there'll be no escaping, no elite group. The land shall be entirely emptied and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth language. The earth is also de defiled under its inhabitants, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. And isn't this a great description of the world we live in today? We are trying to rewrite laws that have applied to all peoples for all times. For example, people today are trying to change the ordinance of marriage to include homosexual unions. This is unprecedented. You know, even in cultures where homosexuality has been tolerated, no one ever suggested that it should be given the status of marriage. This is crazy. The world is tinkering with laws of which it knows nothing about, trying to change God's ordinances. God made marriage for one man and for one woman to live and to bear offspring and repopulate the earth. Therefore the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. If you read Revelation chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, it says, Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the power was given to him to scorch men with fire, 
and men were scorched with great heat. <laughs> the strongest sunblock won't help. Perhaps an explosion on the sun's surface, a solar flare, sends a pulse of radiation earthward. It's a solar tsunami. There's no defense for its burning. You know, in the Great Tribulation, Mother Nature is going to have a severe case of PMS. I mean, the old girl's going to go nuts. Cosmic disasters, geological cataclysms will become daily occurrences. What triggers these calamities, we're not sure. Could it be a meteor strike? Could it be a runaway comet? Could it be a near flyby of a neighboring planet? Some kind of nuclear detonation? You know, what modern science refuses to talk about is that all of these phenomena have occurred before. In fact, frequently. You know, evolution assumes that the earth has operated for billions of years just as it does today. That's just not true. Look at the moon. Look at places on the earth. You find craters. <laughs> that speaks of violence. We've been struck in the past by cosmic projectiles. I mean, all the ancient cultures used to have a 360-day year, 12 30-day months. It was coordinated. It was in sync. The earth hasn't always had a wobble. Something knocked us off our axis so that today we have a 365 and some percentage, some fraction of a, of a day year. Something knocked us off our axis. It is so hard that the earth's rotation began to wobble. Was it Noah's flood? Was it events surrounding the exodus from Egypt? Was it related to Joshua's long day? I'm just saying there have been irregularities within nature. And I believe that the earth will be struck again. One day, I believe, very soon. Verse 7 tells us, The new wine fails, the wine languishes. All the merry-hearted sigh, the mirth of the tambourine ceases, the noise of the jubilant ends, the joy of the harp ceases. They shall not drink wine with a song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. Happy hour isn't going to last forever. It won't always be Miller time. Soon God will crash man's party. He says the city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may go in. There is a cry for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. And the city desolation is left, and the gate is stricken with destruction. Think of the chaos in the streets when this kind of ruin begins to occur on the planet Earth. And, and large metropolises are upset. And when calamity strikes Los Angeles or New York or Paris or London or Atlanta, Think of the devastation. Think of the confusion. He says, when it shall be thus in the midst of the land, among the people, it shall be like the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleaning of grapes when the vintage is done. They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Therefore glorify the Lord in the dawning light, the name of the Lord God of Israel in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we have heard songs. Glory to the righteous. But I said, I am ruined, ruined. Woe to me. The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Indeed, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. You know, in the great tribulation, some people will turn to God and they will begin to praise Him. You know, others will mourn their own collapse, but some will praise Him. Some will say, I'm ruined, woe to me. But others will say, glory to His righteousness. They'll realize that His judgment is really just a reflection of His righteousness and His purity and His holiness and His demands for the same in us. And then He says, fear and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. Notice earth's enemies. Fear, the pit, and the snare. Jesus spoke of the bottomless pit, a place called Hades, a pit of eternal torment. In Revelation 9, we see terrible creatures, demonic creatures, rising out of the pit to torture mankind. Men try to blow their brains out but can't kill themselves. 
death takes a holiday. This may be what Isaiah sees here. Verse 18, And it shall be that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit, and he who comes up from the midst of the pit shall be caught in the snare, for the windows from on high are open, and the foundations of the earth are shaken. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut or literally a hammock. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it and it will fall and not rise again. The earth is literally going to get knocked off its hinges. You know, it seems like once a month now, maybe more often, we hear of a near flyby of an asteroid or a comet. And they talk about, well, you know, the odds of one of these hitting the earth is, is remote. But they're keeping track of them. And they let us know when one comes by. And they're getting closer and closer, it seems. It's almost as if God is shooting little comets right across the bow of the ship, just warning us. Just warning us. Just letting us know that He can do this. That He could send one, a big one, aimed straight for the earth that would cause incredible devastation, that would literally knock us off our hinges, just as Isaiah predicts here. It's going to happen one day. Isaiah predicts it. And then verse 21 tells us, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones, and on the earth the kings of the earth. The day is coming when God will judge fallen angels and prideful kings, is what he lists here. And they will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in the prison. After many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before His elders gloriously. All the earth, the moon, the sun have been defiled by man's sin. And yet our fallen world will one day be redeemed. Jesus will return in His glory. And He will reign from the Temple Mount, from Jerusalem, from Mount Zion. That's why I love to go to Israel. And I love to stand on the Temple Mount in that sacred spot where one day Jesus will rule the world. I love to go there. I feel like when I'm standing there, I'm in the center of the universe. Just the thought that one day Jesus is going to reign the universe from this spot. Today the Temple Mount is under Muslim authority, but very soon that'll change too. Jesus will return from that mountain. He'll rule and reign over the entire universe. For now, God's kingdom is spiritual. Jesus today is the King of hearts, but soon His reign will be a physical one, a visible one, a mighty one. And at last, the prayer that he taught us to pray will finally be fulfilled. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. And so I say to that, come quickly, Lord Jesus.